Thank you for listening to the Green Majority Podcast. We are happy to bring you a show today that is filled with things. No, well, we tried to not make it about Trump. Of course, can't not be about Trump, but we have uh, at least a focus on uh, more technology news this week just for fun, uh, both because there's some cool stuff happening and because we're trying to give everybody as much of a break as possible. We need to pace ourselves here, folks. It's going to be four years. Especially over the next little while, if you think that independent journalism is going to be increasingly important, as do we, you can help fund us directly by becoming a Green Majority member for just a few dollars is is, uh, is very helpful. Uh, as much as you can, of course, is great. But even just a dollar a month uh, as a token of your support uh, means a lot to us just to see your name pop up there on that list. If you can afford five or ten dollars, of course, that's much more helpful. Uh, but anything is very appreciated. You can do that at Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority. Enjoy the show. Listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am in studio once again with Sabina Haseni and Stefan Hostetter. And uh, I didn't even pause to ask her if I got her last name right this <laughs> week, but I did see a nod in my peripheral. Uh, we're going to be talking largely about, uh, well, here's the thing we tried really hard, pretty hard to not talk about trump this week but so that actually kind of makes the theme of this week how you can't not talk about trump mm. um i chose a couple of uh, uh technology related stories and, and corporate related stories just generally uh as did my colleagues um so in an in an, in an attempt to like phase in the, the the trump we do have to do four years of this we will have to pace ourselves <laughs> uh that being said not a single one of these stories cannot be related directly to Trump. So uh, I'm going to go second, as in the middle of the program. Uh, Sabina is going to go third. And first, we're going to hear from Stefan. All of these are generally technology, uh, economy, state of the world um, stories. And of course, you'll be ready for it. We'll have to talk about Trump. Stefan, take it away. Thank you. Uh, that actually is a, <clears throat> an excellent uh, basis to begin this this story, mainly because of the fact that I, I actually plan on this is going to be part two of our 208 part series of resisting Trump. Uh, however, neither story actually is related to Trump, as you mentioned. So the first one is a pretty simple one. Uh, and I think it, you know, it's the one that sort of could not be not talked about this week, especially in Canada, is that our government, uh, and Mr. Trudeau specifically, um, has, uh, has gone back on their plan, uh, to, to, they're much provo- they're much uh, promoted plan actually uh, to to have the two our last election as the last election under first past the post uh, this week they came out uh, he the newly installed democratic institutions minister Karina Gold or Gould uh, on on Wednesday to explain why the government uh, is is giving up on this and it's if you've been following this, you, it's, it's funny. It's one of those things where it's like you keep trying. People kept trying to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to do it. The people kept trying to give them the benefit of that they're going to do it. Um, and then at some point, along the, but they sort of every once in a while, there's a little bit of a hint that they weren't. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the biggest hints was their v- much mocked uh, sort of what kind of voting system do you want personality quiz. 
uh, which was perhaps one of the as an interesting tactic as engagement as it was. Uh, it really failed in terms of you know it didn't it never you know it never actually asked the question what kind of voting system did you want instead asked a bunch of random other questions and never really got to the point, which of course allowed them to then make this statement. So when they when they came out to explain why they weren't going to do anything on voting reform uh, at least in the time being, uh, they claimed that. It, that, quote, it has become evident that the broad support needed among Canadians for a change of this magnitude does not exist. Uh, and that's a quote from uh, the Democratic Institutions Minister, Karina Gould. And this, of course, is sort of the, the lead up to what was expected. Um, there was a, it's a funny little thing in which there was all this conversation about, well, the liberals really wanted one thing. The conservatives really wanted one thing, and the NDP really wanted one thing. And so when they brought that sort of they, – they, they, when liberals went out and brought together uh, those three different they, – they, sorry, they even had May on it, actually. They had, they had four, four or five governing parties all together in that um, – in the sort of committee to decide on what we should do. The, there was clearly – everyone sort of figured out which lines they were going to fight on, and, and then the question was, well, what do we do about it? And – Interestingly, the, 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 and then when they came out with a general recommendation, they, the, the, the committee actually came out with a somewhat reasonable recommendation of, of moving forward on this, on this topic. The liberals once again said, oh, there wasn't consensus. And so liberals have been sort of repeating this lack of consensus thing, um, which of course is, is, is kind of silly in part because they could have always just gone the conservative option. They could have always just sided with the conservatives and thrown it out to a, to a referendum and let Canadians decide. May I just also point out that uh, when you have two wolves and a sheep trying to, trying to decide what's for dinner, you also have trouble finding consensus. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, like I, I, I think the, the the interesting thing here is, you know, the liberals very clearly would have preferred uh, a, a sort of a a ranked ballot system uh, because you know they are they are many people's second choice. The conservatives were quite cons- were, were quite clearly going to most conservatives at least. There's a few conservative candidates outside of this forum, but most conservatives were pretty happy with first past the post because it's really the only way that they'll ever win a majority. Uh, it seems they can't seem to get beyond thirty five forty percent with most of their policies. So I don't actually see us getting beyond that. Um, and then the uh, the final one is. Uh, and then the NDP were obviously looking for a proportional representation because proportional representation would probably, you know, again, if we're displaying what works better for each party game here, would have given us would have given them more consistently the balance of power. So all three had their sort of dogs in this race, and and the liberals, to some extent, have just capitulated uh, to to the conservatives. And again, the liberals also benefited from from, from first past the post um, in that you know they only won. I think I think there's a there's a great. There's a great uh, – I think it was a Beaverton article, but I forget which exactly, exactly one, which, uh, which was that Trudeau defends plan by saying only 39 percent of people voted for electoral uh, change, um, referring to the fact that they only got 39 percent of the vote. Um, and I think that sort of speaks to the silliness of all this. And so it's – again, we'll see what's up next. Um, we're, we're probably looking at – you know, I don't really see – I'm not too uh, – we had a moment and, and the moment still exists. And so the reason why I intro to this as a as a response – as an opportunity to respond to Trump um, is that the first-past-the-post system is unquestionably the one that most consolidates power uh, and unquestionably gives the most likely rise to a Trump-like figure. 
uh, because it, you know, the way Trump won was that he consolidated his base and then he used manufactured that base into into, into victory. Um, and despite the fact that he's you know r- remains even now below fifty percent approval rating. And um, yeah, and and so I don't. I, and so this first possible system allows you to. As far as all the other options, ranked ballot theoretically could do a similar thing, uh, especially. But at least then you're you have a little bit more choice, and and, and but proportional representation is the way to avoid this. Yeah, I think I think we just need to acknowledge here. This is a good time to acknowledge two obvious truths, Stefan. Uh, first obvious truth is uh, the majority of Canadians, in reality, I, I regardless of what they say. Uh, I think don't actually want a fair system. They want a system that benefits the people they like. I, I think that's I think that's hard to argue. So uh, decide from what they'll say. I'm saying this is what's actually in in their in their motivation. So and the second one, and I'll just throw off on this, uh, is that if we have a political system that we're saying is broken to elect people, using that elected system to change a system into one that is fair and not simply the one that suits the party that that takes that swing at bat. Um, I don't I think it's silly and I think that's why the first one. I think Canadians understand the second one and that's why that that they in their hearts believe the first thing, which is that which is okay, we're not going to get a fair system, so I just have to wait until my guys are in charge and get them to change it in a way that benefits them. Uh the only exception of course is the conservatives essentially already have that system and so they're they're entrenched in the status quo and and the liberals arguably have more to lose than to gain. I don't know. Back to you, Stefan. Yeah, I think the liberals with a ranked ballot would have a little more to gain, but the liberals are already doing pretty well. Um I I I would push back on the question of whether a majority majority of Canadians actually want that. I would definitely agree the majority of politicians want that. Um, well, no, no, I, and to the extent that I just mean is that, like, I, I, if you ask them, like, do you want a system that benefits you? Like, if you ask them that question flat out, they wouldn't say say yes. What I'm, what, where I'm sort of coming from with that is a little bit more nuanced in that, um, essentially, you know, everybody thinks that their position is right. And so there's this general sense, I think, in a, and, you know, we often accuse the right of this, but I think everybody's equally guilty of this, which is, well, my position is right. Therefore, as long as we get the thing that's right and that will ultimately benefit everybody, how I get to get that policy that I believe is correct doesn't matter because when i get it it's going to be so good that everyone's going to thank me i mean that's essentially like we're looking at is essentially donald trump's what the uh, entire argument has really been a subtext in politics for quite a long time he's just so brazen that he comes out and says it out loud but i re- i really do think that that's how people think but what's what's i think different and, and a little frustrating is that all political parties currently admit that first pass the post system is flawed all parties admit that we're not doing it the right way now. And so the lack of political will to change it is perhaps one of the – it's one of the most frustrating things about this whole scenario. Um, but just to, to wrap up this short piece um, is that what we we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do a little more on the show is provide ways that, you know, you want to talk about how we can be the resistance or how we can resist sort of this, you know, this, this push, especially from Trump, and, but, but even also here at home uh, against all of the, you know, sort of different sadnesses. Um, the the first one seems pretty obvious to me is is support this push to to for proportional representation or at least get a push against the first past the post system um, and there's a bunch of different organizations uh, working on that system uh, working out to do that lead now is a pretty good one they've been sort of on that beat since really even before Harper was out of power um, and, and this was a chance so this I think this remains an opportunity to to to, to hold the liberals accountable now I I think that the liberals lack of political will currently uh, speaks 
speaks volumes to, to what we might see in, in a couple of years. Uh, but I think you, if you got a minority government in a couple of years, you actually could see some some electoral reform. Um, and I think I think following either lead now or any whoever you want who's pushing to change our current voting system uh, is a good way to to begin to bring some checks and balances back into our own political system as we're watching them get basically squashed in the United States. Yeah, and I, th- and I think the last thing that we can predict fairly conclusively on that is that regardless of you know who gets elected next time, the opposition parties, in particular the conservatives, are going to use this to attack Trudeau, even though they're simultaneously happy that changes were not made under Trudeau. So like, oh look, here's another failed campaign promise. You know, you know, Canadians want electoral reform. Will be an attack ad. Even if they would have preferred that he not do it, I don't. I, I think the I'll be interesting. This again leads leads to another question of you know if the Conservatives run Michael Chong, uh, they actually can run a we want electoral reform because he's been on that for on that beat for a while. If they run basically anybody else, yeah, then you're basically looking like, hey, we're the poster child for why you don't want uh, like why why you might want electoral reform before we get in power again, uh, especially if it's O'Leary or Leach. Um, but anyways, moving on to the to the sort of other half of this. So the first half is sort of how we can resist. I, I've gotten mildly obsessed with uh, this, this, this term that I randomly heard recently, uh, which is the resistance and the revolution. Uh, and the resistance is sort of stopping what's happening right now, and the revolution is building the future that's better. Um, and so to move from the resistance to the revolution, uh, storage, which I think uh, no one has ever said as excited as I just did. Um, uh, battery storage is, is booming. And we had a brief story on this uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, but I'm bringing it back. That was when uh, when Tesla announced its 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 large um, it's, it's turned on its Gigafactory. But this is another story coming out of Bloomberg that sort of speaks of not only just that large uh, factory that is being built by Tesla, but expands that to two other large uh, two other massive battery storage plants: uh, one built by AES Corp. and one by Alt Alta Gas Limited. Clearly, neither of those two realized that having a cool name for your business is a good idea, um, <laughs> like Tesla did. Um, but although perhaps you know they're just trying to they're trying to be more sort of behind the behind the scenes kind of thing. Um, but all three storage plants were basically all got built in the last almost at the exact same time, and all are, are all at least going live in, in Southern California at the same time. And and to give the sense of scale, this is like a kind of thing that the sense of scale is important here, because any one of these three, any one of these three battery battery, battery facilities would have been the largest battery storage facility ever built. So all three, uh, and all three combined, uh, amount to fifteen percent of the battery storage installed planet wide last year. So just these three power plants. That's how big this is. This actually is. And and then the conversation here is actually that. You know, as we've always mentioned, the the huge the huge sort of little piece that everyone like the holy grail, I guess, of a clean energy grid is this conversation. The holy grail of this clean energy grid is this question of uh, can we get storage and solar or storage and wind to match um, to match uh, parity uh, price parity with 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 coal or natural gas or whatever you're competing with. And and the biggest part of the big reason for that is if you can get it to match, you can start shutting down perhaps some of the hardest power plants to get rid of, which are these sort of peak natural gas plants. These are natural gas plants that get fired up only when uh, when when the, 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 the when energy demand is at its highest. And and so right now and, and they act as that sort of buffer. 
and because it's because natural gas is the easiest sort of turn on and off. You know, it's like a it's like a it's a little switch basically. All right. Um, versus some of the other renewable energy, which you can't do that same sort of stuff with. You know, hydro has a relatively base power. You can sort of switch hydro a little bit, but wind and solar, especially without storage, just happen or it doesn't happen. You can't make the wind blow. Um, but if you can bring price parity to storage, uh, then you can actually then you, then you start really disrupting the system. Yeah, and I, and I would add to that just like not even as a as a contradiction, but as an as an addition too. I mean, that is yes, that is absolutely critical when it comes to battery, but it's also not the only way to make renewable sustainable when you have. Uh, a proper audit done of the available resources, you can gear things such that they overlap. So for instance, if you have, uh, uh, just really quickly, so if you have, say, uh, one gigawatt of electricity from a current uh, uh, power uh, region, um, it, based on current average technology, those things, there, there's vast uh, areas for improvement with efficiency. So say you do some a bunch of efficiency upgrades and you uh, now knock the needed power down to 80% of that, let's say, right? Uh, so then you have, uh, oh, it turns out, well, there's some, uh, there's some geothermal opportunities here. So now we build a bunch of geothermal. That does not require the wind to blow and does not require the sun to shine. And then you overlap the solar with the wind. Now, well, generally, not always, but generally speaking, when the wind isn't blowing, the sun is shining and vice versa. Not always, but generally speaking, those two things uh, uh, don't happen, uh, uh, happen to some degree to to have overlap. So, I mean, now the number just keeps coming down and coming down and coming down and coming down. And every single one of those things saves you money in the long term. So there's no uh, yes, there is a high initial cost, uh, but this can do nothing but uh, go down. And what's better is that when you do a variety of smaller technologies rather than one big scale technology, which uh, I don't know, there might be some animated video somewhere about that uh, on our on our website called Climate Cartoons, um, the, where we recently talked about this. But it means that by, by, by diversifying smaller sources and overlapping a, a variety of things, it also means that you can slowly scale them up, right? So, I mean, we've seen uh, over the last three years, the price per g- uh, kilowatt hour for battery technology has gone from uh, $599, basically $600, down to $275. That's more than a half drop in uh, the last four years. Um, and as this technology continues to rapidly be scaled up, when you do a bunch of smaller installations rather than one big one, you can also trade them up as the technology gets better. Um, so I just wanted to underline that is, it is batteries are critical, but they're also not the only thing. But well, especially I think batteries are batteries are critical uh, not just for the electricity grid, but more even more importantly for for cars. Uh, cheap battery storage, and that's actually what's driving the cost down to some extent, is Tesla's own demand. Tesla basically is driving is is demanding itself to build more batteries, which is then allowing it to scale at a place where it can reduce its own demand. It's it's sort of self requiring itself to reduce its own cost, um, and yeah, it's basically Seema. just using market mechani- mechanisms. So. Because more people are willing to buy Tesla cars, therefore they have more money to invest on like technology to create storage for those cars. Yeah. So I think, I think another main reason for batteries and renewable energy is that we haven't really right now. There's a boom in investment, but before we didn't really see investment in this type of energy, and now that we're going to see it more and more, there's going to be economies of scale at play, so that. A lot, a lot more people are going to be able to get this stuff for cheaper. Yeah, exactly. The, the, and the economies of scale are very important for both solar and also actually for uh, for batteries. And to give a sense of just how much scale this is actually we refer, refer to, uh, California is mandating uh, that its utilities begin testing batteries by adding more than 1.32 gigawatts by 2020. Uh, so it's one point two. That's a fair amount of power. Uh, but for context. Um, in 2016, the global market for storage 
everywhere was less than a gigawatt. So this means that we're – that's the level of scale that we're already even talking about. That's already doubling the demand uh, even in just the next four years um, or, or sort of – just California is adding the entire demand of this year over the next four years. And, and But even that goal is dwarfed by Tesla's, uh, Tesla's own goal, which is to deliver by itself 15 gigawatts, gigawatt hours of battery storage by the year 2020. Um, and so these are the size of which um, – uh, these are the size of which th- these goals are, are emissions are, are, are scaling. And just to give an understanding of what 15 gigawatt hours of battery storage a year means, uh, it's enough. It's enough to provide several nuclear power plants worth of electricity to the grid during peak hours. So it's 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 huge. Now, still, you have to actually generate that electricity, which is why you need a massive scale out of solar and wind to actually provide energy to those battery systems. Um, but that's the amount of, 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 of scale that we're talking about we're going to see in the next four years. And the scale is so much so that there's discussions of, um, uh, of, of the possibility that by 2020, this impact and in the, in the, in the increase of e- electric vehicles because of this massive decrease of price of, of batteries could actually stop the growth of oil consumption by 2020. It might hit peak oil by 2020, some analysts are now saying, not because we're going to run out of oil, but because we're going to run out of demand, uh, which you know, throws a lot of the other questions about pipelines into the, into the sort of the fire. Uh, but before I throw it to, to, to Darren to, to bring us to our music break, I just want to – I want to quote – the Tesla chief technology officer, J.B. Straubel. Strubel. Probably Strubel. It's more fun to say Strubel, so let's say it's Strubel. Um, although if he wants to cor- call him on our show to correct me, I'm more than happy to have our, the Tesla's chief, te- chief technology officer on, on hand. Um, but, uh, but what I like about this one line is that it's, sort of exp- it's, it's one of the things that we sort of are frustrated constantly. And un- interestingly, it's also one thing that, that Tesla itself has been criticized for, uh, which is the incredible pace which they, and expectations they place on their workers to work basically all the time. Uh, like it's, it's, it, it sounds like one of the, it sounds like one of the most interesting, but also one of the most incredibly taxing and, you know, Musk sounds like a bit of a, bit of a jerk to his employees, um, most of the time. Um, but, but, but what's interesting about that is that we constantly talk here about the speed at which we need this transition. Um, and, and this quote, uh, from, from the, from, from J.B. Struble. Uh, is that what they're doing now and how they're building these, these, these factories and how they're building up uh, the storage capacity, uh, quote, it feels like the kind of pace we need to change the world. And, and I, you know, to some extent, we talk about what a World War II effort looks like uh, in, far term, in terms of changing our overall infrastructure, and it looks like a, a, this kind of work. It looks like this kind of speed. Um, and so little bit of maybe hope. Uh, buy a power wall or, you know, maybe don't buy from Tesla directly. Buy it from somebody else or just understand that storage is really cool um, and, and massively important. And if you want to sort of help the world while dealing with the fact that Trump is uh, still existing, uh, those are two ways. Support lead now and buy a b- bigger battery. Uh, I'm going to throw over to Megan, uh, one of our techs for today, to introduce what the next song is. So for our first music break, we're going to be listening to... All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIET 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners across the country now into the United States uh, and uh, internationally as well, uh, are one of our uh, wonderful co-media folks who uh, help promote the show, nationalobserverrabble.ca. I was recently named, to my surprise, in an article on Vice they don't host. They didn't know they were hosting us, but no, yeah. they said Green Majority. So thanks <laughs> for that, Ryan yeah. O'Connor. <laughs> um, 
in the podcast. Don't forget about that. Today it's going to be just Spina and I, and uh, uh, I feel like I'm saving my Trump-directed vitriol, or sorry, my Trudeau-directed vitriol for the bonus show today. So don't worry. I haven't gone crazy. I'm just saving that. You'll have to listen to the bonus show for that. Um, and actually, it comes with, I should say, it comes with a congratulations today. He didn't, uh, he did a couple things I liked this week. We'll say that. Um so uh, I'm in, I'm covering tech. I'm in the studio here. I can't entirely see you guys in the other room super clearly. So if you want to jump in, just just do that. Uh, <laughs> but here's what we're going to do. So I have two stories. We haven't talked about Monsanto in a really long time. Um, and Monsanto is kind of interesting because uh, it's uh, saying the word Monsanto is kind of like walking into a university and saying the word GMO for the same reason uh, in many cases, which is that uh, lots of emotion, lots of people have really strong feelings right away. Um, I also despise Monsanto, but I think it's really important to just uh, to be clear about what do we disagree with and why. Uh, so here's a good example. So uh, in the news this week, court rules against Monsanto allowing California to put cancer warnings on Roundup, which is one of their lead products. Uh, Monsanto, uh, this is a, a weed killer and uh, it's sold more than 160 countries uh, for more than 250 different varieties of crops. Uh, it was labeled as a possible cancer threat, uh, despite the insistence uh, from Monsanto that does not pose any risk. Uh, and uh, that was no risk to people. Uh, that's going to be very interesting. I want you to remember that phrase right there. No risk. Uh, we're going to come back to that in a second. Uh, so it's also important to note that this is a, this is a tentative judgment. Uh, it has not been 100% confirmed. I'm not entirely sure what a tentative judgment means. I mean, aside from literally, but I don't know how that fits into to law uh, in the US. Um, but it's probably tentative. Uh, I'm tentatively sure I know what that means. Um, it would be the first state in the United States, and uh, Monsanto had in the past sued California um, uh, based on their decision uh, to do this, uh, based on the International Health Organization based in France. Now, part of their argument um, is that uh, the international uh, agency is a French-based branch of the UN World Health Organization, and uh, uh the uh, Monsanto, however, contends that California is delegating uh, authority to this uh, unelected foreign body with no accountability to the U.S. called the United Nations. Um, <clears throat> technically true, I suppose, uh, <laughs> if that's where you want to go with that. Uh, now, the chemical is not restricted currently under U.S. Uh, EPA law, uh, and I don't think that will change despite this news article, uh, which lists it as low toxicity. Okay, so... The, the chemical company says uh, that it has no risk. The US EPA uh, says it has low risk, uh, which for definition means that it recommends people avoid entering, uh, 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 coming into contact with material that has been sprayed with this chemical for 12 hours. Um, see, when I thought of low toxicity, I was thinking of like my shampoo because it, uh, it makes my hair feel nice, but if it gets in my eyes, it stings a little bit. That to me, that's low toxicity. <laughs> uh, not touching it for 12 hours um, ever. Uh, seems seems like a misnomer to me, but anyway, uh, the um, uh, this organization uh, again is French-based uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer. It's based in Lyon, France, uh, and they have identified it as a probable human carcinogen. Uh, attorneys in California and I would have to agree. Consider the uh, this organization the gold standard for identifying carcinogens and rely on their findings. Uh, not only do several other states, federal the federal government itself. Again, maybe not anymore, uh, but several other countries. Uh, and uh, Sabina, go ahead. Okay, so um, as a chemist, I also know that a lot of these testings, like toxicological testing is only for acute exposure. So they say glyphosate, which is like what Roundup is, they say that 
the way that they measure its toxicity has nothing to do with inhaled like exposure of it for a long period of time, which is for sure gonna cause like for me, it's an it's an organophosphate and it's very it's definitely gonna cause cancer in most people. But when they when they test when they test the exposure of it, they say only if you touch it or if you come into contact with it, not the fact that it can be an environmental pollutant, which then it's not only where where it is or in the agricultural communities it's also pretty much in our environment in our soil in our water and it has a, like um, carcinogenic traits so i think glyphosate because it's used so much like you said it's 100 167 countries 160 yeah yeah 160 so because it's used so much we there's such an abundance of it in in our in in our um, environment that we should really take care to say that this is low risk and uh, low toxicity or no risk or whatever because it's really untrue. And another thing is that for pesticides, children are specifically more affected than than adults. So we're going to have like a whole generation of children that are being raised um, that have either have come in contact with endocrine disrupting pesticides or carcinogens where you don't see the effect until later on in life and there's like low fertility re reproduction problems or um or cancers so i think these are like these chemical companies should really think before they say low risk or uh, no toxicity warnings on and there is a uh, remind me is endocrine disruptors the ones that uh, hormonal that, so yeah. it's so it affects your hormone system so it could be either neurobehavioral it can you can get something as as i guess low risk as add or something as like leukemia or a brain tumor or um like reproductive issues. Yeah, see, that's funny because I, you know, I, I heard that Alex Jones is really concerned about the uh, the government feminizing people, and, and the Republicans <laughs> seem to be really against LGBT uh, LGBT rights. Uh, right. So you'd think they'd have a problem with that. I mean, I don't. Let's be clear. I obviously don't. Self interest, but um, you'd think they would have a problem with that. So here's where the, uh, the rubber meets the road, as they say. So I'm now quoting directly from the article. Terry McCall believes a warning would have been saved her husband Jack, who has toted a backpack for of Roundup for more than 30 years to spray weeds on a 20 acre avocado and apple farm let's go back to the beginning of the article don't come into contact with it for 12 hours uh for 30 years he was wearing a backpack of with this i'm pretty sure some got on him now he died of cancer in late 2015 that does not absolutely and sabina will back me up here this is a this is a correlation not causation no no uh conclusion can be drawn from that uh, but I think what's really interesting is is another farmer they spoke to, uh, Paul Bentecourt, uh, who says he's been using Roundup for more than three decades on his almond farm and cotton crops and says he doesn't know anyone who's gotten sick from it. Also not relevant. Uh, aside from the fact that uh, it's hard to not come in contact with it when you're doing it. So, but here's, the, here's the real, I think, the really great quote. So you've got to treat this stuff with a level of respect like anything else, he says. Gasoline will cause cancer if you bathe in the stuff. I also wouldn't consider gasoline low toxicity. <laughs> just saying all right so really quick history lesson on on who are we talking about because i mean this is this is really where the rubber beats the road uh when it hits trump right trump wants to get rid of uh regulations and uh and says that this would be good for business it probably will be as long as you're not in the insuring people's healthcare business um because uh aside from the fact that there has been a well-documented revolving door between monsanto and the agencies which are uh meant to uh 
uh, review them. Uh, but just a little bit uh, of a history lesson, Monsanto also operated the Dayton Project and later uh, Mound Laboratories, which assisted development in first nuclear weapons. Uh, they also uh, began manufacturing uh, DDT, uh, which uh, then also uh, uh, they produced uh, PCBs. They also uh, produced uh, Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. Uh, this this is what we talk about when I when I uh, when I bring up things like the amorality of the corporate structure. Uh, the example I wanted to use was uh, something around nanites, right? This was a very popular 90s sort of like it was the 90s zombies thing, right? It was nanites, nanoscale robots self-replicating. And you, they said the very simple version uh, that's used in, in sort of like late 90s horror movies uh, is that or science fiction essentially was that. So you say we have too much carbon in the atmosphere. So someone uh, says, aha, I'm going to make nanoscale self-replicating robots that convert carbon to gold. We're going to take something we don't need or we have too much of and we're going to turn it into something valuable. What could go wrong? Uh, the problem is, is that like corporations, like mindless corporations whose sole directive is to maximize profit, these uh, carbon maximizing uh, nanites uh, have no thought process. They simply perform their basic function, uh, which is to convert carbon to gold. Guess what? We, at some point, we require carbon. There's a whole bunch of carbon in our bodies. You might say we're carbon-based life forms. Uh, now, the, of course, it's getting into silly territory here, but the, 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 the analogy stands. Uh, we have uh, organizations whose sole interest and sole requirement is to maximize their profit and their influence. Uh, that's how you get companies that, oh, by the way, they're also the sole producer for the United States of white phosphorus, which is a military uh, and really nasty, uh, essentially super napalm, um, is that their single goal is to maximize their profit. Uh, and when you have Trump, what you're essentially doing is, aha, I'm going to take some nanites, and I hear that in the future this could be some problem, um, but I don't believe it, so I'm going to actively like spread them everywhere. Uh, like You're increasing the problem. You cannot win by taking someone whose sole responsibility is to help themselves, give them power, and say that that is going to ultimately help us. Uh, that is to significantly misunderstand how corporations operate. The individual people who work there are not relevant in that because they are all slave to that machine. They can quit. But they can't make it do anything other than maximize profit, and that's the problem. Uh, so for more on that, you can check the website. Uh, the other thing I wanted to get to really quickly, which I'm sure I'm, yes, of course, I'm running out of time for, is uh, to, as a col uh, corollary to what Stefan was talking about. Paper-thin solar cells uh, could provide power for 1.3 billion people, uh, aside from the cost that uh, aside from the fact that solar power itself has declined dramatically over the last few decades, uh, it was about $40 per watt in uh, 1977 and is about $0.74 cents per watt uh, as, as recently as three years ago. Um, this will allow people who are currently without electricity to plug in for the, the th first time because they can be printed uh, off of relatively uh, cheap industrial printers. Now, relatively cheap means you still need a very significant uh, capital investment, but the actual production of which, once these investments have been made, uh, is is very low and is going down very quickly. So a uh, 10 by 10 centimeter solar cell uh, of this film is enough to generate as much as a 10 to 50 watt uh, per square meter uh, panel. And they, because they're flexible, they can be mounted almost anywhere. They can be moved very inexpensively. Um, and this could revolutionize. So this is, this is a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, what's the bad thing? Well, the bad thing is, of course, is that without further changes, so say if the only thing we did uh, was flood, uh, say, uh, China and India with these cells, and we did nothing else. Well, all you have now is that regardless of the fact that it's coming from the sun, uh, you now have a whole bunch of other people who have been brought into the modern world. Great. We want that. We want them to have electricity. The only problem is now they also become consumers. So uh, 
that that is a that is not a single solution uh, because what you're doing is you're adding new people to be electricity consumers and you need to now produce all the materials to do all of that so uh, this technology provides a path to getting off uh, fossil fuels but without corresponding uh, uh, ways to reduce uh, outside of the market and within the market our dependence on fossil fuels simultaneously um, these plant panels don't get wished into existence they still consume resources and they will now uh, because they're doing what they're intended to do which is raise the the quality of living living for these people who are currently without power which is something we want uh, but if we don't also uh, take a decrease in other areas elsewhere uh, perhaps more so than the increase we're going to get uh, that benefit will be short-lived as all of us are then suddenly pledged into catastrophic runaway climate change uh stefan comment i think that makes you know i think there's what i i love how there's like every one of our rants can end with catastrophic climate change and it just this is like this is how that works this is, this is what we're doing now yeah you know like I, what are we doing here well like like how are we going to find uh a way forward like sabina actually during the break uh, and i were talking briefly about this idea of of how to move forward and if it really requires a, a culture shift or or if technology can save us um and i think there's a lot of people out there who are who are banking on the technology can save us part and and i think that technology will help but i also think that we're you know i i, I think that there's there needs to be you know like you can 3D print all the solar panels you want. If no one puts them on their house because they're ugly, we're still we're still going to see catastrophic climate change. Yeah. Um, and and so I think there's a. I think you could have a whole show, to be honest, about yeah. that conversation. Uh, but it's whenever we sort of go through one of these like really tech-heavy sections, my my other side of my brain says things like, "But what about just buying less things? <laughs> what if we did that?" Hippie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like it's the economy. Buy solar panels, Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's so so often than not, that's the question, right? It, it's it's like is buying be- we, you can't buy your way out of this problem to some extent. You can definitely that can definitely do a lot of things, but to some extent, there's going to have to be another conversation. Well, and I started really quickly before I'll give Samita the last word here. But um, uh, one of the one of the things that we I've been doing, I mean, I've been talking about it for a while. I've actually started to compile. I've sent you a preview copy, Stefan and, and Sabina as well. But I've added more to the list uh, of uh, it's going to prevent me from continuously bringing things up on the show uh, as far as like my solutions to ideas, because we are, in fact, going to do a whole show on uh, a bunch of policies. We may not agree on all these, but we're going to kick them around a little bit uh, and they will be posted on our website, which is that a lot of the the, the trouble with discussing these issues and the trouble with doing it in the format of a radio show a radio show or a podcast uh, wherever you may be listening is excellent because it's long format but it's not nearly long format enough to make up for say a university degree and to really understand these issues you need several university degrees to really have a complete understanding of it we've done our best with our singular university degrees and spending you know decade plus reading the news uh, and doing independent research but but even still i mean we're we're barely experts i want to uh, point out that sabina almost has two well, so she's so, she's winning. It's doubling our but efforts, no really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not nearly as much experience SAS talking, but but far better educated. Uh, uh, but I mean, the point here is is that yes, is that you know it's very easy to take any portion of the show or even this entire show and say, aha, well, yes, but if you factor in X, Y, and Z with the market, blah 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 blah, blah it's it's very easy to come up with sort of shoot from the hip or rapid fire, uh, uh, seemingly uh, problematic uh, issues with any point of view in any format like this. Uh, But what we all really need to understand is that all of these problems are connected. They're all interlocking pieces. And so you can't just pull one of them out of the puzzle and say, aha, I've solved this problem. And this is really what we're talking about here. Um, 
and I think well, basically I can predict the rest of the shows for 2017. It's all going to be uh, holistic change in the sense that you have to change a whole bunch of things to get anything else to do it. It's the same exact thing we were just talking about a minute ago with the proportional representation, right? How do you get how do you get a power that got elected under one system to change the system to another one that is more fair and theoretically, uh, in most cases, would be less likely to elect them or at least them as strongly uh, as previously? It's a you need a more fundamental change than simply voting in liberals and saying please do the best for all of us uh, because you know we have complete naivete about how politics works um you really need holistic solutions so we will be doing that and that also means that i'm going to go on slightly less rants about these individual points on the individual shows until we do that show uh because we're going to deal with that in a holistic fashion at some point and then from that point forward i will simply be able to refer back to those list of suggested policies because they will be posted on the website so stay tuned for uh that uh we're going to now in a minute go to our second and final music break and we're back. You're listening to the final section here on the Green Majority Radio, CIET 89.5 FM. Our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners uh, internationally, as well as Rabble.ca, National Observer, Vice, uh, and Bugs Bunny. Just th- threw that in there in case anyone's asleep. Uh, <laughs> Sabina is now in charge of our final section. Please take it away, Sabina. Thank you. So I just, I kind of wanted to go back to what you were saying about, before I, before I get into the stories, I wanted to go back to what you were saying on the holistic and how how interconnected these all of these issues are and i really wish i didn't sound like such a hippie all the time like when i it's i i'm trying to make a scientific point and then i'm like but man it's all connected <laughs> it's all connected <laughs> and, like, I, and, it, and because it's it really is and and but i think that people find it really really scary to try to tackle something as large as like holistic change and uh, a fundamental shift in change when they can just say oh look but this but this technology can just make your greenhouse gas reductions like less than 20 like by it can reduce them by 25%. It just makes so much it's so much easier to reduce things by 25% than to completely change who you are and the way that you do business and the way that our society works. Well, I, I just think it's worth noting, Sabina, not only are you t- are, are you quantifiably the most educated uh, person in, in this room, uh, but of, of the three of us, uh, you're the only one of us on the hippie note who does not currently need a haircut. So I just I just thought that you should have that. <laughs> Maybe I do need one. <laughs> um, okay, so for for the news for today, I'm going to talk a little bit more about agriculture because it's it's kind of become an obsession of mine as of late. And, um, and then a little bit on Canadian scientists um, and U.S. scientists. So for news south of the border, President Donald Trump, uh, and I can't believe I'm still saying that or saying that at all, but has nominated Sonny Perdue, a former Georgia governor and the current head of an agribusiness trading company, as his agriculture secretary. So a little quick background on Perdue. As a Georgia governor, this is I'm quoting from um, the, the article from The Guardian at the moment. So uh, as a Georgia governor governor from 2003 to 2011, he has supported factory farm expansion. So that's going to piss off every vegan ever. Uh, Cracked down <laughs> on immigration and opposed air quality regulations. So that pretty much – so <laughs> anybody that believes in anything – is already pissed off by this guy. So he famously also thought that the best tactic for a state suffering from drought was a prayer vigil. And then at a time when food systems contribute as much as 25% of global greenhouse gases, 
He joins the growing rank of cabinet nominees that deny climate change, saying that it's a running joke and liberals have lost all credibility. So this is now the head of agriculture in the U.S. And agriculture, as I'm going to reiterate, is one of the biggest greenhouse gas emitters. And also we need it for food security and to live. So uh, moving on from that. So Trump's decision was, of course, widely applauded by the National Chicken Council, the Cattlemen's Beef Association, as well as the Farm Bureau Federation. And uh, they praised Purdue for his credibility to make American agriculture great again. Yes. And so <laughs> great again for who, first of all? So and the whole ethos, if I may, of Trump's Make America Great Again um, is to, quote unquote, bring the power back to the people. And his choice in Sonny Perdue as an agricultural minister is quite questionable to that because right now Sonny is more focused on on large scale agriculture, specifically monoculture, and with the main goal of export and trade. And this will literally only benefit four percent of of the farmers in the U.S. And the rest of the ninety six percent are middle class farmers that rely on rely on agriculture or rely on giving agriculture to the American people. Um, so this is not, so these like the main, the main, like the basics of trade theory is basically that the only people or the only farms or firms that can trade in trade theory are the most productive firms. And this goes back to increasing productivity, increasing efficiency, increasing money. But when you have monoculture and when you have a farm, like large farms that whose main, uh, whose main point is to trade, that means that you're not really, not only are you not giving um, sustenance to the people in your country, you're only benefiting the 4% that are f efficient enough and productive, uh, productive enough to trade. Um, yeah, no, I just wanted to also uh, remind people as well that, uh, you know, to as far as, you know, quote unquote, right wing goes, uh, pull your stuff up by your bootstraps and we can't be subsidizing things and we have to make sure that that industry is maximizing because, you know, profit is, you know, that is the best way to, you know, trickle down and all these buzzwords. Um, I'm sure we can all guess what the two most two of the most heavily subsidized industries in the planet are is agriculture and fossil fuels. Congratulations, bootstraps. Exactly. <laughs> and and I think it's it's. This is this is really where where it all like why it's so difficult to make any of these changes is because when you have like large powers like this or even even these um, national chicken council or the cattlemen's beef association or the federation of agriculture or farm bureau federation these are very large unionized very. I, I'm going to guess unionized. I'm not I, sure. I would sort of, I'm almost certainly not unionized. Sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, no, largely <laughs> because because of how often migrant labor is used within okay. within yes, agriculture. I would be I'd be shocked if they were effectively unionized. Now there might be some. Uh, it, it's definitely an organization of of, of farmers. Yeah. Uh, but I would be very very surprised okay. if, if, if at least some of them are unionized. That's why I corrected myself because I actually wasn't <laughs> sure on that unionized thing. But but it's still very very powerful. And, yeah. And and that's and and so for me, my main my main concern of why this is an issue of only having monoculture like soy, wheat or corn growing in the U.S. is this increases, first of all, the use of glyphosate like Roundup Ready. That's that like all of these all or or. Um, so it increases the use of pesticides. It reduces soil. It reduces soil fertility. It increases the resilience of pests because one pest can basically effectively destroy the entire crop because it's only one crop. So if a, a resilient enough pest is introduced to this crop, 
which is what would happen if climate change is to occur at the rate that it's occurring right now, um, then so not only does this not provide sustainable food production for American people, but it's also just not a sustainable way to continue food production at all. And if you're only focusing on exporting uh, these very large, uh, like soy and corn, you're not really increasing biodiversity in the area, which means that, that there's a lot of problems that come with that as well. I, I'll just jump in on, on, on the corn thing. Um, more often, than the, the, the corn, subsidies, corn subsidies in the United States are are ludicrous. If you ever want to, you ever want to like what? One of the frustrations I have with 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 this whole Trump thing is basically that like there are so many real problems that the United States has to fix, and now we're just trying to preserve what exists, even when things like the corn subsidies are basically just giving and they're pitched as a way to as a way to help the middle you know middle class farmer people where in reality what you're, they're actually doing is just massively subsidizing large like the like coca-cola and pepsi because they, they basically dr- drive down cost of, of of corn so much that then that's why corn is now in everything like if you ever look for glucose fructose or, or anything like that that's corn which has been used as a sweetener because corn is so cheap that they it's cheaper now to get sugar out of corn rather than to use actual sugar sugar and it's way cheaper yeah and and i mean just to have to come back to this because it's so perfect the the thing of the subsidies is so ludicrous right subsidies generally like subsidies are in used in many cases in theory in theory the way they're supposed to be used is it's a public good uh that uh is so beneficial that it's worth it for the government which is you know the combined purchasing power of taxpayers uh that it's in everyone's benefit to provide the producer of that thing that's so incredibly necessary uh with some upfront uh advantages such that uh it's lowered uh for those consumers in theory those subsidies should produce better cost gains than what you give them so if taxpayers put together $5 million in subsidy. In theory, uh, this should produce more than $5 million in savings. That is the theory behind it. But in practice, how this works is it it also entrenches existing companies. And so these existing companies go ahead and take advantage of all those subsidies, uh, all the soft drink companies, all the food producing companies, uh, all uh, as far as the corn specifically, as you were mentioning, uh, the, the corn syrup, uh, all the fossil fuel, all the resource extraction, basically all of the entrenched technologies. Uh, and guess who owns the vast majority of those companies? Giant right-wingers who donate to right-wing organizations who try and prevent uh, uh, who try and lower taxes on the rich and try and pre- uh, uh, fund climate denial and try and prevent new technologies from breaking through. Who are these new technologies usually done by? Uh, this is generally done by Silicon Valley and by small startups. These are the people who actually need subsidies and they're not being they're being prevented by it by people that already have subsidies so that they can keep their money. And I'm really confused how any right winger out there thinks that they're the beneficiary of this arrangement. Please, if you have if you have an argument for why this is ultimately in everyone's best interests to uh, to prevent advances in technology and for, from, from preventing uh, technologies that will uh, lower costs and improve our uh, benefits uh, as far as the actual products themselves, which is theoretically the outcome, right, is to save people money and to provide greater benefit to the public. Um, I'm all ears. Our phone number and email is listed on the website. Come at me, bro. Uh, well, just to, uh, quickly, just to, on the comment of, of, of the purpose of these subsidies in particular, I think are more actually meant to save uh, or to help small farmers. And, 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 and farmers, the difficulty is that when they build them, they do it by, by amount. 
And so most of the subsidies go to the – instead of, I would say, by doing it by farm or by owner, they do it by amount produced, which means that most subsidies go to this massive, massive pr- producers, which then supports monoculture, then supports you – know, it's, it's, it's an inherently flawed system that works to only encourage larger and larger farms to be used by single, fewer and fewer people. Um, and it, they could provide the same subsidies, but if they – but with requirements to diversify their yields, then you have a, you have a whole different conversation. But sorry, we – Sabina. No, I mean exactly what I was I was going to say next and this this article also pretty much nails it and it, they say that we can also expect produce USDA to slash incentives for conservation on farms that safeguard land and keep water viable for future generations. It, they, we can expect them to ignore worker demands for better wages and protection. Um, and also, he has very close ties to Coca-Cola, which raises flags exactly. So it raises flags for public health. And the U.S. already has a huge problem with obesity and really malnutrition. I'm not going to say malnutrition is what we imagine it like in those you know, NGO commercials of children in Africa. But malnutrition is also when you just don't have enough nutrients to live a healthy life. And all of these packaged, prepackaged, like soft drinks or foods, those are in a way malnutrition, and which is why we're seeing a rise in non-communicable diseases such as obesity and... and um yeah, you can meet, you can eat a big back, you know, seven times a day. You're still malnutritious, or you're still you're still not getting the nutrition you need, which provides malnutrition because it, most of that isn't food. It's edible, but it, <laughs> I wouldn't call it food. Exactly, and so, and lastly, to end it uh, to end this article on climate change because that's the that's the key point that that connects all of it. Um, as we start to see the impacts of climate change, it increases the uh, pests. And uh, this will be a large issue for smallholder farmers, especially because our smallholder farmers in, in America and, in, and around the world. But this, um, because they are the ones that rely on the ecosystem the most, and uh, an increase in pests in pests will actually affect them the most more than large large scale farms. And as well as monoculture is largely unsustainable and has a very um, has just a lot of unsustainable practices and and a lot of issues for soil, water, and air. And um, so to move on from agriculture and uh, unsustainable practices, we're going to talk about a new article, a new art, or an article that was just posted as well on The Guardian about Canadian scientists offering support to the U.S., to their U.S. Ca- counterparts. So for me, I, I really, really... I'm happy to see these kinds of things, but I'm really, really sad to see that there is essentially going to be a muzzling of U.S. scientists and and it's science that's been backing up all of the all of the facts and all of the figures on climate change and on protecting our environment. So when you start to introduce, quote unquote, the alternative facts um, and start to have an, a people f- with people full of climate change deniers and it really really uh demotivates everybody everybody around them so um this this article basically just says uh canadian scientists have been making contact with their their counterparts in the u.s in order to offer their support and solidarity amid mounting fears that donald trump's presidency will seek to suppress climate science um, I don't know if you guys have any opinions on this or. Well, I, I th- it is it is interesting that um, how quickly that the similar similarities started coming across in the you know from from Harper to to Trump, um, and I think it's, I, 
you, you learn, I guess, how to com- combat it to some extent. You know, the scientists actually arguably were very, very effective in combating Harper here. Uh, I'd be interested. Uh, I think it'd be va- very valuable information they could provide of sort of, you know, how to resist, in what ways are useful to resist. Um, and because there's certainly all layers of government bureaucracy that, you know, that you have to sort of figure out your way through to do. Um, and so I think this idea of, of, of cross-border like almost even like it's get it gets better sort of campaign. You know, it's like yes, like it's gonna be a scary time. We went through it as well, uh, and you know we we have our we have our issues with Trudeau, obviously. But you know he did at least unmuzzle the scientists, uh, and so to some extent, you know like. You know, any government that's scared of science is probably government you should be scared of, um, and so and so it's good to see that sort of science, like which no one ever, really, I would never thought scientists would be a would be a block of people that would be like in a political sphere, but clearly it's becoming one, and it's good that they're standing together. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority here live, CIUT 89.5, or on one of our wonderful partners. Check out the podcast for the bonus show where Sabina will be joining me in just a minute. But if you're on the radio, check out the website, and we will see you later. Have a good Green Week, folks, and take care. That's it for the regular program. You're now going to listen to the bonus show where we talk about uh, both uh, a little bit about Trudeau, but mostly I actually go on a bit of a rant. We got uh, some interesting Twitter interactions, and I don't always have time to uh, or the ability to get into, uh, for instance, in this case, economic theory debates on Twitter uh, due to the uh, the character limit and all. Uh, but uh, I did take some time to talk about it. So we talk a little bit about Trudeau, and we also talk a little bit about capitalism. Is it the problem? How do we fix it in this week's bonus show? If you enjoy this type of content or the regular show or anything or just like the smile on Stefan and mine and Sabina's faces. You can become a Green Majority member. Help widen that smile a few inches more uh, by going over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So it's like patron with an extra E in there. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority. Enjoy the bonus. Welcome to the bonus show. Uh, it is just uh, myself, uh, Darren and Sabina. And uh, I want to do the first thing, which was just acknowledge that there's a, uh, a chance, a slim chance, possibly, uh, that Justin Trudeau personally listens to this program because he's been following our advice recently. Uh, so keep it up, Justin. Uh, if you keep it up for a little while longer, I might agree to stop calling you Justin and start calling you uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, that could be a thing. Um, but what's, I think, more important than that is what he's been listening on. So He's not listening on oil. <laughs> He's not listening on that. Still getting that dead wrong, Justin. Um, but what I am pleased to see is the very beginnings of a development of what might potentially look like a backbone. Um, when it comes to Trump, we don't have a backbone yet, but we're in like sort of like a, a pre-backbone state at this point. Um where there was some statements coming out this week saying, uh, you know, in addition to just, you know, opening our doors to refugees, which then it sort of turned out that maybe we're not gonna. Um, so you might actually have to do that for starters. But saying it is to start, you have to say you could say things before you do things generally in politics. Generally, that's how it works. Uh, but I think more importantly is that there was some cautionary tales, uh, uh, some cautionary tone coming out uh, from the prime minister's office, um, which is the thing that I very much agree with. I think is definitely the right tactic, which is saying, you know, we're looking forward to working together with the Trump administration, but we have some concerns about X, Y and Z. Uh, very, very good. Uh, he also did something that, to my knowledge, at least not this definitively has uh, any American politician has ever done, uh, which is we're on the bonus show, right? I can swear now. Yeah. Bitch slap the shit out of Fox News. <laughs> oh uh, 
Uh, did you hear about the Spina? Sabina? No, I haven't uh, heard. I'm, I'm, I'm listening very so attentively. So Fox News, so we had, of course, the extremely tragic, and I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to sign, sound sort of funny in this part. The, obviously, very tragic shooting that happened uh, in Quebec uh, recently it was committed by a white nationalist, not the Moroccan that was reported. The uh, Moroccan person uh, who was originally detained was detained because uh, in the initial confusion, he was seen uh, running from the scene by police. Uh, So originally it had been reported. And this is – I think you could argue is sort of – it's sad but I think it's within the realm of acceptable mistake to make this mistake um, because there was – even I read some some contradicting and confusing information coming out as the story was breaking that there was a – there was a Moroccan of of, uh, uh, – sorry, a a Muslim of Moroccan descent uh, was one of the two suspects. Fox News ran with that story saying, look, here's another example of Muslim extremist. Uh, you know, we told you so. Uh, now, it, this turned out not to be the case. Um, the person who was detained was a, a young man and he was not only helping people uh, but had uh, – had, I b- believe is actually the person that actually called the police. And the reason he ran was when he sh- when they showed up, the officers were not the, – the, the first officers on the scene uh, I don't believe were uniformed. But anyway, he saw a gun uh, and he ran concerned for his safety. So he was uh, seen running from police. He was then apprehended and interviewed. They have immediately and now – unequivocally said this person was not involved. They were there to help. There are no charges. We have, there's not a doubt in our mind that this person was not responsible. In fact, that you might even go so far as to hero might be a bit much, but uh, definitely an extremely brave individual who's there doing the right thing. The actual criminal was a, was a white nationalist. He was both white and a white nationalist. There, maybe there's one that's not, um, but what happened? Of course, so Fox News, of course, immediately retracted the headline. No, of course they didn't. Uh, they continued running with it. So the prime minister's office uh, wrote a very strongly lettered, uh, very strongly worded. Uh, I'm not sure if the original form was a tweet or if this was a public statement, but anyway, uh, uh, forced them to delete the tweet, uh, which was uh, by saying, you know, this is absolutely not the case, and and you know, don't you dare use this to fuel uh, anti-Muslim sentiment. This was absolutely not what happened. That's completely. Uh, uh, you know, irresponsible and extremely firm uh, and harsh language uh, and did the closest thing you'll ever get to Fox News issuing an apology uh, for their hate mongering, which was they now basically just denying they ever said it uh, and deleting the tweet. So if that's what we're going to see from Justin Trudeau, if, if and if he can apply that to people other than right wing media and actually apply that to Trump himself uh, and and just smack him in the face, even if it's just verbally. Uh, anytime he says anything that's just demonstrably false and hateful and trying to stir up um, divisive sentiments, um, then I'm prepared to give him a pass on some of the foreign policy stuff. You know, this obviously doesn't go anywhere near the oil. Uh, but I mean, that's what we need to happen. And the point is it worked. And I think this is something that uh, I'm not going to play Young's Turks quick clip this week. Um, but there was another one that was going around. Actually, sorry, my apologies. This was actually Rachel Maddow. Uh, on MSNBC. Uh, I think it's MSNBC she's on. Anyway, Rachel Maddow's show. Um, going through the fact that there was a number of areas and that this, in fact, may be the Trump uh, tactic, which is put in something way past what's reasonable, way past what's legal, and then you end up with whatever they can fight you back to, right? So this is uh, this is not – this is very likely not Trump being an idiot and in fact, he's, the fact that he seems to not have any idea what he's talking about and, and largely does not have any idea what he's talking about or, or know anything about 
but behind him is Steve Bannon. And this is a very specific tactic when it comes to pushing uh, you know, policy and, and trying to push things beyond where they can be is essentially is you ask for a hundred million dollars and then they're you know if you sue somebody and you, you try and sue them for a hundred billion dollars or whatever and then their lawyers fight that number back you'll get a lot more than if you asked for a smaller number and try and push it forward or if you asked for something that was actually reasonable because no matter what you're going to get pushed back uh, and so what they're trying to do is and they've done this on a number of fronts so there's two lessons to learn here one is that he is uh, pretended that that's not what he meant now because of pushback on a number of issues uh, people are right to see these as victories. But point two is don't lose sight of the fact that this is not victories in the sense that you know he tried to do something and we defeated him. The entire game itself is push this as far as we possibly can and then we'll get whatever we – as much as we can hold our ground on. This is a tactic to get the most – possible extreme positions through uh, because it's forcing the the other side to essentially stop, you know, daring them to stop him and then whatever they can stop him on, he'll back up to say that was his original position and now he has the most extreme possible thing he can possibly get uh, under any situation. That's how we get that um, by by intentionally, you know, going high. It's part of negotiation. Um, the guy, I was about to say, wrote the art of the deal but he didn't and the guy who actually did thinks he's a lunatic. Uh, but uh, the point remains. Sabina. Yeah, no, this is this is just basically like nego negotiation tactics where like exactly what you're saying, like some people, people will anchor or a person will anchor the price at a lot higher than what it's supposed to be or will ever be so that you think that, oh, OK, so I can only go down maybe like a hundred or a little bit lower than that. I can't really. If somebody says this costs a thousand dollars, you can never say, "Oh no, actually this is five. Like you can only go so low. Right? You've set, you've set the you've set the bounds of the negotiation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No. And 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 that can be very common. And and for people uh, like this is the. Um, you know, depending on on where you go, this uh, some cultures are more used to this being part of the general uh, thing, and so sometimes in such a multicultural city as we have in Toronto, occasionally what you'll have is uh, different areas. You know, if we're not used to uh, in, in our culture, they're even being that. Like if you go into the store in Best Buy, they're not gonna you're not gonna be like, well, what if I give you seventy five percent of that? It's not it's not part of sort of general culture here, but depending on where people come from, sometimes that's uh, I've I've spoken to people. I've spent quite a bit of time in retail. And I've spoken to people that are actually quite upset that I wouldn't haggle with them, not because they wanted a better price, but because that's how they like doing business, yeah. right? Uh, and I think that um, is is very much what we're looking at, uh, not only looking at with with Trump, but it's it's but it's also important to recognize that this is sort of how some people operate. But for, for those of us who don't, uh, you when somebody tells you it's a thousand dollars, you go, oh, okay, I don't want to buy it, right? So it's not even a matter of like so. There's the there's the a there's the a part, which is. Um, You've now set the bounds and you've now made it very, very difficult to negotiate uh, within how much you can ask them down for. But also that key factor is that a lot of people are going to go, oh, well, that's the asking price, so I'm not going to buy it. And when that comes to policy, that means, well, there's nothing I can do. Like he's, he's, he's saying I want to invade seven countries. Obviously, this person is a madman. Asking him to only invade four is kind of pointless because who invades any country pointlessly? And I, th I think that's where that correlates. So a lot of people's reaction is just to sort of give up or to not in interact on that. Um, and I understand that sentiment despite the fact that it's tactically wrong. And I think I, I think that's more or less what you're getting at, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, for me, what I what what I've been noticing so much is that a lot of people are just. I mean, we we have uh, 
we've already spoken about this, but a lot of people are just so sick of seeing all of this news on Donald Trump and all of the things that he's doing or saying that that people are just kind of tuning out. And uh, in last show's episode, you said that that's the last thing that we should do. And I thought that that was really important because the the moment you start tuning out, that's when when laws like get or when policy is passed and no one has any clue about what's really, really happening because they just don't want to see Donald Trump's face anymore. And I think, I think for me, that's been the hardest part, like moving and, and reading everything. Like sometimes I just don't want to look at his face anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's sort of what we're saying is like, you know, when he goes, I want to invade seven countries or I want to, I want to remove well, the, some of the recent stuff this week. Uh, I want to make it so that churches are allowed to donate monies to political campaigns because we should erase this wall, you know, of separation between church and state. Um, people go, oh, well, this is somebody who's simply not operating in reality. I don't know how to interact with them and so I'm not going to. Um, and unfortunately, uh, as much as I understand that sentiment and I agree with it from a like mentality point of view, no, we have to. Uh, and I, you know, at, at the risk of being super cheesy and, and quoting, I, I think it was Churchill, something about, we fight them on the beaches. And yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, this is just where we're at right now. We just have to fight them to you know the maximum degree on everything, um, and the the price of failure on that is is disaster. There's no you know well it's fine we'll just hold our breath for four years. Um, you know arguably, arguably you could have you know <laughs> arguably they did uh, do that through George Bush, but we now have somebody who's not just you know uh, trying to enrich themselves, which is you know Dick Cheney uh, making uh, Bush his his puppet, um, but an actual madman. And so that, unfortunately, that that sentiment of you know, well, whatever we you know we lost this round, let's fight next round, is not an option. It's just not. Exactly. Um, now I didn't know if there was uh, any other science news you wanted to get to at all. Um, I think for for today, I'm I'm pretty good. I'm I'm always really interested to hear a lot about the politics because as much as I try to really stay on top of the politics, it's really hard to stay on top of everything. Like, like we were saying, like as much as you can study or do anything, you can only know so much in this world. So it's always really important, I think, to see where it all connects with one another and uh, how to kind of get those, like to make scientists more informed of policy or politicians to make, to become more informed in science or. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, uh, There was actually one other thing really quickly here Um, before we go. So somebody tweeted at us and and I told them that, uh, that I wasn't able to answer their question via tweet uh, because they asked me to sort of like provide a, a synopsis of my thoughts on capitalism. (laughs) Sorry, friend, that's not going to, that is simply not going to happen on Twitter. Uh, I'm also not going to take an hour to do it now, but I will make a quick comment on that. And, and Sabina, if you have a comment on that by the end, you can do so. Otherwise we'll wrap it up there, uh, which was, you know, people have, people have talked about, uh, mentioned to me. And, and of course I've mentioned uh, repeatedly that we, our system has many, many problems. And so a, a question I get asked often is sort of, uh, and in addition to this person, it's not the first time I've been asked is, well, is capitalism itself the problem? Uh, I have two-fold responses to that. Uh, one, well, three. The, the first one is yes, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the opposite of capitalism or something other than capitalism is the solution because point number two is we don't actually have capitalism as it is purely defined now. What we have is plutocracy and crony capitalism, which is uh, in basic economic theory, if you take eco 100, there's a whole bunch of things which, you know, ideal capitalism, the theory of it is based on. And there's a whole bunch of things which are easily refutable as not true, like they can't be true. And yet this, fa- this informs the basic theory. Now, 
Eco 100 does not does not describe how the economic system works. Uh, so people will say, well, so your your point. So I'll give you an example: uh, is that uh, capitalism operates under the assumption that everyone has perfect access to information, not just not just good information, but perfect access, meaning they know all things, they have all available and relevant information to make every decision. Obviously, this is not possible. So people will say – now there's many. That's just my favorite one. Uh, there's many of these principles that underline basic capitalism. So well, people will say, OK, well, that's because you've only taken – you know, you've only done Eco 100. In reality, we have these other systems which you know, that are informed by those things. But don't worry. This all works out. Well, but that's where the problem lies, right? Is that the argument for capitalism and, and people saying that you know, your effort will lead to this and that's how we – and money will trickle down is all based on those foundational principles and your answer that, well, we don't actually have a system based on those fundamental principles goes – and I go, exactly. <laughs> so – if we did, what we can do is we can uh, – and I think it's far more relevant than throwing out capitalism because I think the general principle of capitalism that if you contribute more to society, you should, you should benefit more from society. At its very, very core, a lot of, a lot of uh, purists uh, will tell you that's really what it's about. And as far as that basic principle, I agree. Uh, but we don't have that, A. We can't have that under the basic assumptions uh, of capitalism. So that means that we need to put controls in place to balance out that that power uh, imbalance. Um, and it also means limits. And that's why I think that rather than coming up with some other system, uh, you know, which is simply un unrealistic in the sense that in the short term, we can't transfer the entire – you can't just take a major economy and make it not capitalistic uh, overnight. This would take an incredibly long time, not just even from a voting point of view, but from an from a from a legal infrastructure point of view. You just couldn't snap your fingers and do it. Uh, if you're a major, you know, Western nation, if you're not a major nation, uh, particularly not a major Western nation uh, who's already a democracy, um, your impact of doing that would just uh, financially hurt you, and and it would never, and there wouldn't be any ripple effect over the world, right? So, in the short term, it's not possible to do that. Um, but more importantly than – or in addition to that and I think more importantly than that is I don't think it's necessary. Uh, I think the basic simplified ideas of capitalism are valid. Um, it's that we need to have stronger controls in place to balance out the power uh, imbalance and part of that has to do with one of my proposals that I will bring up on this policy show that I'm going to be bringing up, which is that not only do we need to have a minimum standard uh, uh, of living – that we accept that all people have access to housing, clean water, and clean food, and a basic modicum of education, uh, but that we should be uh, using things like trade deals, which are not universally bad. They're just all the ones we ever get offered that are designed by corporations are bad because they're designed to prevent, to protect, and empower multinational corporations are the problem. But trade deals aren't the problem. We should have a basis of a trade deal that's based on the fact that we will give you priority trading status uh, if you also with us agree that your citizens uh, should have access to these basic things. And what it does is this removes the ability of corporations to play countries off each other. It would prevent – you know, if, if, if China and uh, United States and Canada and India and – uh, you know, and all the small, uh, you know, as far as big players, and then also bring into that, uh, you know, Bangladesh and India and a bunch of places where cheap labor is is abused, uh, and everybody said, okay, we're all going to have these basically free trade, like actual free trade, not the scare quotes kind of free trade that we got under t uh, TPP uh, and NAFTA and stuff like that, based on the idea that. 
um, you can't undercut our labor and you can't undercut our environmental predictations because we're all going to have the same. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's paid exactly the same, but that means within your country and within your economy, you're providing a same standard of living. So not the same dollar value, but the same standard of living to your citizens. Uh, now, the, the trade imbalance and the way that the resources get developed are developed based on who can most efficiently produce those and who has those natural resources rather than who can abuse labor and, and laws, right? So it's, it's based on who is best suited to actually provide these services rather than who is most willing to undercut their own citizens um, so that a few multinational corporations and a few rich people in that country uh, are the ones who actually benefit. If we, if we explore trade through we're going to create these standards that apply to everyone that we trade with and we won't you – know, maybe we'll trade with you but we're not going to create you know, free trade zones with you unless you agree to that. That is how you fight back against corporate power and how do you pay for that? Whoa, that's all going to sound very expensive. Well, along with that basic minimum living standard, you also create a maximum. It is my argument that if the, the basic underpinnings of a system that says that the more you contribute to society, the more you should benefit is that – it is simply not possible for a corporate uh, for a CEO who earns you know two thousand times more than than the line worker on uh, in their assembly plant. I argue, I, I dare you to quantify how are they two thousand times more contributing to society. Uh, you say, well, the company provide no. Well, no, no, no. Just that one job. We're not talking. It, it would make sense to me if the company made two thousand or ten thousand times more. If they have two thousand or ten thousand or fifty thousand employees, but that one CEO does not single-handedly produce 2,000 times more value for that economy than the line worker. I would argue that they're actually pretty close. So in along with that and how do we pay for it, we also create a maximum income where, sorry, folks, you don't get your $2 trillion golden parachutes. Uh, we're going to take all that money, which you're never going to notice because you already have 17 freaking Ferraris, and we're going to give people houses and feed them. I'm sorry, but fuck you. That's what we're going to do. Uh, and so that's what I say. And so uh, I'm, I did this, A, because I wanted to answer that person's question, uh, and also B, because I plan to refer uh, back to this uh, the next time somebody asks me to, uh, in 144 characters, give them my synopsis of economic theory. Um, I will tweet them the link to the bonus show. Final word? Um, no, you can also tweet them the link to um, the Limits of Capitalism, the one episode that we did before. Right before was... I got sick and then everything flew to hell for six months. That's yeah. true. Uh, we'll, we will come back and do that again. Thank you very much uh, for joining me today, Sabina.